It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I find myself cringing when I hear senior officials say ISIS has been defeated or Al-Qaeda has been defeated. And so as I left government, one of the things I was most concerned about bequeathing to my successor was that he or she for the first time was going to face the potential for a decline in, in the amount of resources devoted to the problem set. Three cabinet-level departments or organizations around the table to manage a domestic terrorism incident, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 organizations around the table to bring a similar amount of government focus on a question of international terrorism. That's, that's a, a simple and raw way of looking at it, but it tells me that we're probably not yet in the United States at the point where we have a whole-of-government response to the domestic terrorism problem that is likely to grow in the period ahead. Based on the way the first two years of the Trump administration have played out, we now have a president who is perhaps more confident in his instincts, more confident in his own judgment on matters of national security and foreign policy than he was at the start, at the outset of his administration. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. I'm Chris Farnham, and this is the podcast that looks at the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo-Pacific. This podcast is brought to you by PolicyForum.net and the National Security College at the ANU. Today, we continue our discussions with global leaders from the national security community with a focus on counterterrorism as we speak to the former Director of National Counterterrorism for the United States, Mr Nick Rasmussen. And you've just heard him and a few of his remarks from his address to the National Security College at the ANU last week. As director of the National Counterterrorism Center in the US, Nick was responsible for briefing the president and the National Security Council on counterterrorism, and he also led America's counterterrorism community on behalf of the director of national intelligence, Jim Clapper, who we heard from on the NatSec pod only a few weeks back. Nick is currently the Senior Director of the McCain Institute Counterterrorism Program and is for the coming few weeks being hosted by the National Security College as a Vice-Chancellor's Distinguished Visiting Fellow. Now before we chat to Nick, I'd just like to say thanks to everyone uh, who sent questions for this podcast and for those who you'll hear from in the podcast that recorded some questions at our recent public event. And if you'd like to get in touch with a response to today's discussion or with questions for future podcasts, you can do so via Twitter using Apps Policy Forum or on Facebook at Asia Pacific Policy Society or send an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Uh, you can always leave a comment in the review sections of whatever platform you pod with and of course whilst you're there we'd love you to subscribe and to give us a rating. And now let's talk national security and counterterrorism with Nick Rasmussen. 
G'day, Nick. Welcome to the National Security Podcast. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. So after 27 years of public service, you've recently returned to private life. How's that transition been going for you? Well, as you would imagine, uh, there, there are some positive aspects of it and some negative aspects. The part I miss the most about my time in government service, of course, is the people. Um, working with colleagues and friends that you came to rely on, came to con- consider almost family over a long period of time um, as part of a counterterrorism enterprise, uh, that's what I miss the most. I don't miss the politics. I don't miss the craziness of the political atmosphere in Washington right now. Um, but I do miss the people I worked with, and I miss the passion and the commitment that they brought to the table every day. So given that we're at an academic institution, I figure that we can kick off with a suitable question. Uh, terrorism as a concept is is pretty contested. There's no broad definition that anyone can agree on. Do you have your own definition of terrorism, and how does it differ from other definitions that you're aware of? Well, when I think about terrorism, I usually think about um, a couple of different elements. It has to be. It has to involve action um, that brings violence against innocents, people who are civ- either civilians or in some way not combatants. They're, these are not individuals who have signed up to be in any kind of war or any kind of conflict. And the other element of the of the terrorism definition that that I always find important is what is the motivation? And the motivation, if there is a political motivation, either an ideology ideologically driven action or if the terrorist, the actor, is somehow acting to advance some political agenda, then that brings it into the terrorism domain and, and separates it from what is perhaps pure criminality. Um, and those are the elements that, that, that make the most sense to me in terms of defining terrorism. What creates problems, of course, sometimes in some countries around the world, terrorism or, or terrorist uh, is a label applied to some individual who may be engaged in political opposition, political activity opposing the, the existing government. But that still falls short of my definition of terrorism, of course, unless it, it, it involves uh, that first element I mentioned, indiscriminate violence against um, innocent civilians. So in your address to the National Security College earlier this week, uh, you said that it it is a strange time to be an expert or a leader in counterterrorism in the United States. Could you maybe expand on that and tell us what makes this moment so strange? I said that, again, not maybe for the reasons you might expect. It had nothing really to do with the politics of our time. That's a separate set of issues, and and we can certainly talk about that. But what makes it a strange time to be in the counterterrorism business in the United States is simply the fact that other issues of national security and, and international security have become as important or even in some cases more important than the, than the set of counterterrorism challenges that we've been dealing with in the United States for the last uh, 16, 17, 18 years. Again, if you were thinking about terrorism and counterterrorism in the post 9-11 environment in the United States over the, most of the last two decades, you were job one. You had the first command of resources. Uh, there was almost no set of resources you couldn't call upon to address the counterterrorism challenges that we had. Now, if you look at the national security landscape, we're worried about China. We're worried about Russia. We're worried about cyber threats. We're worried about uh, malevolent political influence being exercised by hostile nations. All of those are really important national security issues, and I would argue so is counterterrorism, but counterterrorism and terrorism don't sit alone 
down at the top, perhaps the way they once did. Yeah, we're actually going to get onto a great question about resourcing and maybe even a bit of politicisation of national security challenges later. But for now, I'm I'm actually quite keen on what the threat landscape looks like today. You, you've mentioned previously that you really cringe when you hear media spokespeople and politicians claiming that ISIS has been defeated. Could you tell us what the difference between the fall of the caliphate, which I say in inverted commas, and actual defeat is for ISIS, and maybe follow on to where you think al-Qaeda is today and what kind of a threat they pose leading into the next decade? Sure. I mean, it, first of all, I don't want to minimize or downplay the success that we the United States, but we, the United States, in partnership with coalition allies, have had against ISIS in, in terms of shrinking the caliphate and in dramatically reducing the size and scope and scale of ISIS uh, as a as a proto-state. Uh, none of that should be minimized. And, and the degree of success we've had against ISIS in, on the battlefield, as I said, should not be minimized. At the same time, that success on the battlefield doesn't translate right away or certainly doesn't translate in the near term to some significant shrinkage of the way in which terrorists threaten us, whether it's here in Australia or in the United States. For example, the the two most recent incidents that you've suffered here in Australia, uh, in Victoria, the two incidents in Melbourne, at least as best as I know, neither of those uh, perpetrators or uh, those involved in those incidents were actually card-carrying members of the Islamic State. These are individuals who it seems, at least based on the reporting we're seeing, to have been motivated by an ideology. And that, that ideology exists and survives even though the caliphate has been shrunken fairly dramatically. So politicians often want to look at this as a war against a terrorist organization where somebody surrenders and there's an end point. And unfortunately, that's not the way in which the terrorists operate. Even as ISIS has lost tremendously on the battlefield, it has sustained its ability to motivate and recruit individuals around the world to do horrible things. So beyond the set of challenges that ISIS and the Islamic State pose to um, Australia, the United States, and other Western countries, we're still very much dealing with uh, a residual al-Qaeda-related threat that simply hasn't gone away. I mean, I used to say when I was still in government, though we were talking all the time about ISIS, there was really never a day when working against al-Qaeda also wasn't job one. Uh, You simply couldn't turn your eye away from the set of threats we were dealing with tied to various al-Qaeda-linked organizations. And though we have had tremendous success, again, as a coalition in putting pressure on al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and Pakistan and dramatically shrinking the the degree to which al-Qaeda leadership can plan and plot and organize attacks from that safe haven in, in, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, that's all good. But that that network still very much exists, and it has become in recent years, I would argue, more resilient and more agile in the way that that network communicates with with each other around the world. You still have affiliate organizations of al-Qaeda operating in places like Yemen and Somalia in North Africa and certainly now in Syria. And those affiliate organizations of al-Qaeda are, have proven to be very lethal and very, very focused on carrying out attacks against potentially Western targets. And I don't want to be a scaremonger here. We're, we're, we're less at risk in many ways of that mass casualty, large-scale attack organized by al-Qaeda uh, sitting in Pakistan the way they, that they did at the time of 9-11. 
but they still very much have the capacity to be a, a threat in, in many of the local environments around the world. So whether it's our diplomats, our business people, or our citizens traveling around the world, they could still be very much at risk of attack from al-Qaeda. So is, is that change in risk profile in that uh, we aren't at such a great risk of a spectacular attack in a Western capital, but we are, if you are traveling to say Lahore or somewhere like that, is, is that a change in strategy on AQ's part, or is that an indication of their reduced capability because of the actions that we've taken against them? I think it's both. I think they're certainly, those organizations, Al-Qaeda org, as, a, as an organization has realized that its reach has been dramatically constrained and that it may not be within their capacity. It isn't within their capacity to plan, execute, and, and carry out that kind of complex, multi-layered attack of the sort that we suffered on 9-11. As an alternative, there are other tactics available to terrorist organizations that can keep them relevant and can help them advance their political agenda. And often that involves simpler attacks uh, carried out in an environment where they have more of an advantage uh, and where the challenges uh, or the, or the counterterrorism pressure is perhaps not as great. So I would argue it, it is a strategy, but it's a strategy born out of necessity. Does Ayman al-Zawahiri have the same potency and importance that Osama bin Laden have, given that we don't hear uh, public proclamations or media releases from him like we used to from UBL? That's a good question. I mean, I I think Ayman al-Zawahiri was never going to have the same hold and reach over the organization that its founder, Osama bin Laden, had. That said, it's still an organization that very much still adheres to a hierarchical um, structure. And so so the, the words matter when they are issued by by Zawahiri. At the same time, the pressure that has been put on al-Qaeda around the world has meant that individual al-Qaeda nodes, whether that's again in Yemen or the Arabian Peninsula uh, or East Africa or North Africa or Syria, those nodes have by by necessity been forced to become more self-sufficient, that there, more responsibility is put on these nodes, these affiliate organizations to act uh, consistent with the organization's ethos and strategy, but not necessarily having that that day-in and day-out contact with leadership that might have been possible uh, a decade ago. Now, I want to get back to terrorism as a challenge for the US and for countries like Australia. Um, we actually have a question from one of the audience from your recent National Security College address about priorities and resourcing. Hi, uh, my name is Aidan. I'm an NSC student. Um, is there a sense that after 9-11 there's been a, a disproportionate focus on counterterrorism when other challenges have also been uh, increasing in recent years? The resurgence of Russia is a challenge to the US, um, Iran and North Korea. Um, is there a sense that maybe the, the, the threat of, of counterterrorism has been magnified out of proportion to its actual um, ability to harm US interests? It's a very good question, and I think it's one of those questions you can only answer in hindsight or in retrospect. Certainly in the immediate uh, years, in the early years, immediately after 9-11, when we were engaged in a wholesale restructuring of our national security apparatus and the creation of a homeland security apparatus, it was hard to argue that any any amount of resource devoted to this project was was too much. Uh, again, having suffered what we suffered at the time of 9-11, it would, it would have been hard to argue that anything would have been too much. At the same time, I think the question rightly acknowledges that other national security challenges have certainly emerged in recent years. And maybe you could argue that those challenges never went away or, or never were absent from the scene. But certainly in recent years, the resurgence of Russia as a national security threat 
uh, to the United States um, and, and, and a, a national security threat of a very different sort uh, given Russia's interest in manipulating our political system. The continued rise of China as both a regional and potentially global power, uh, the emergence of cyber threats, uh, either both from state actors and from non-state actors around the world, all of these are issues that, of course, deserve their their full share of resourcing uh, from a national security perspective. The challenge in national security is how do you manage multiple top-tier priorities all at one time? Because the moment you turn away from any one of these top-tier priorities, you run the risk that you've under-resourced uh, the government's efforts, and you will find that you've left some important gap or some important vulnerability. And that's that's why decision makers, politicians get paid the big bucks uh, to make these decisions. And I don't envy them because, as I said earlier, uh, the counterterrorism problem set is not getting smaller. It's just that other problem sets are getting bigger. And the problem set of, of counterterrorism is also evolving in itself. And I know that the challenge of domestic terrorism is one that you have quite a strong position on. And that was, again, reflected in some of the questions that we've fielded from the public. Hi, oh, yeah. Look, I found it really interesting. One of the things I sensed was um, a sense of exasperation on the part of Nick about um, homegrown terrorism and how in the aftermath of 9-11, which is receding in time in the public's mind, and not surprisingly, that it's become more distant. Um, and he sensed that the threats were omnipresent. And I'm just sort of wondering about um, how he thinks, and he, he did sort of sense a sort of sense of frustration about it, what he thinks needs to be done. Uh, I'm quite curious as to why it seems that the United States mentions many topics, Daesh, ISIS, ISIL, those sort of things, um, but they can't seem to discuss the homegrown, white, Christian, fundamentalist aspect of, of homegrown terrorism. So we have a broader question and a more pointed question. One is about how you're saying that the focus on terrorism has dropped down a little bit and you've had all these other more traditional and non-traditional national security challenges come alongside terrorism, but you've also had different kinds of what you may call terrorism arise onto the, the uh, public consciousness and also onto the plate of policymakers as well. One of the challenges there was looking at some of the white nationalists and some of the other religious fundamentalists. You've also got environmental terrorists and so on. How do you see the difference in the way that the US looks at, say, international terrorism and domestic terrorism and what do you think is a good roadmap into balancing those threats and prioritizing them? Well, again, for most of the post 9-11 period, our focus has been on international terrorism, either terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda or ISIS seeking to attack us, or those organizations motivating individuals inside the United States to carry out such attacks. So the, when we use the term homegrown violent extremist, we're usually talking about someone who, even though they're not a member of, of ISIS or al-Qaeda, they share the ideology. They share the worldview. They are, they are, in effect, acting to try to advance the cause or advance the narrative of an ISIS or an al-Qaeda. And that's one category of terrorism. And we've organized, I would argue, reasonably well to confront that sort of terrorism. Break, break. We're now facing, I would argue, a, a period where we may face more terrorism happening that is purely domestic in nature, that is not tied to any overseas ideology, that is not in any manner tied to uh, an, uh, an ideological narrative put forth by a terrorist group like ISIS or Al-Qaeda, but instead 
emanates from political grievance or political disenfranchisement at home. You use the term white supremacist or you know, or some form of race-based hatred um, or race-based animus directed at, at, at our fellow citizens in the United States. That's a different sort of terrorism and it's something that I, I would argue we aren't as well positioned to grapple with as a country and as a government as we need to be and as we should be. In the National Security College uh, public event that I did the other evening, I talked about how one of the things I'm proud about from my time in government service was our whole of government approach to dealing with international terrorism. We involved every department and government agency that you can think of across the United States system, whether it's an intelligence, law enforcement, uh, diplomacy, military tools, all of those agencies were around the table helping us deal with the problem of international terrorism. The problem of domestic terrorism has largely been left in the hands of the FBI and our law enforcement colleagues to fix. And I'm not sure that as, as talented and as capable as our FBI is, I think that the, the problem of domestic terrorism probably requires a whole-of-government response, not simply a law enforcement response. Does that mean it needs to have a different political approach as well? I would argue that it does um, because, again, if, unless you want to have an, a strategy for dealing with domestic terrorism that is purely reactive, finding and arresting people after they've committed a crime, then you don't really have a, a successful strategy to my mind. And, and so there has to be a political element to it as well, a, an element that seeks to identify individuals before they've become um, actually violent and seeks to dissuade them or, or in some way divert them from the path of, of radicalization and violence. And again, the FBI does a lot of things extremely well. Uh, extraordinarily well. But asking the FBI to, in a sense, play social worker on behalf of the United States to try to prevent those outcomes from happening, that's not fair. We need to bring other elements of government um, into the conversation about domestic terrorism. Now, we, we have a follow-on question here that, that's related to domestic terrorism. I'll let one of the public ask that, and then I'll, I'll add some context afterwards. I was actually interested in more domestic terrorism, um, interested particularly in the difference um, with America and their gun laws and how he would treat um, gun violence in America. Would that be treated as, um, I guess, a domestic terrorism incident and what would the response be to it? So you will recall, maybe not fondly, your last media engagement as a public official, as Director of National Counterterrorism, you were asked a question about the ease of access to firearms in the US and, and how that may impact your ability to protect the public from those who wish to cause them harm. Your response caused a bit of an uproar within the public. Could you possibly give us an account of those events from your perspective and how that relates back to the question we've just heard? Sure. This this event you mentioned came right as I was as I as you said stepping down from public service uh, last year at the end of, of of 2017, and I was asked what I thought was a relatively simple and straightforward question: Do you think that the availability of guns, um, the ready availability of, of firearms in the United States, makes the terrorism challenge harder, more difficult for you, people like you, Nick, who are involved in counterterrorism? Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. doesn't work. And again, perhaps I was a little too naive in, in the way I answered the question, but to me, it, it, it was not a, a difficult question to answer because the answer is obviously yes. It's obviously an affirmative yes. Anytime you have a situation in which you have individuals who are potentially – who are radicalized and potentially on the path to violence, to actually um, acting on their radical or extreme views, then of course the question becomes what resources and, resources and tools do they have at their disposal to carry out those violent impulses? In the United States, it's a simple truth, a simple fact that guns are easily obtained, whether legally or, or illegally, and that an individual who may be motivated by an, an extreme ideology, whether that's a white supremacist ideology or a Islamic terrorist ideology, um, if, you, if you marry that extreme ideology with ready access to firearms, then you have put yourself in a more dangerous, potentially more lethal situation. Again, I thought I was making an analytical point, not a political point. But of course, my words were heard and interpreted by some as being a, a call for more aggressive gun control or more, more aggressive uh, legal regimes aimed at, at controlling the, the spread of firearms in the United States. As a personal matter, I, th that would align with my personal political view. But that's not what I said at the time. At the time, I simply made what I thought was uh, an analytical judgment and a relatively straightforward one. So you used a very controversial word just then. Fact. <laughs> is it possible in, in the current political climate in the US and also in Australia to actually state facts without them being politicized? Can you have a rational, pragmatic debate on such a controversial issue such as access to firearms in the US without it becoming politicized? It's certainly very difficult. And again, it's the, one of the things that I think troubles me most about political life in America right now is the toxicity of the political rhetoric and the tendency of all sides to only speak in, in words and tones that convince themselves further of their own righteousness. And so there's very rarely is there an effort anymore to, to honestly engage in dialogue with someone of an opposing view with the idea that we might somehow find common ground. And when it does happen, it's, it's, it's so rare and so exceptional that you want to nurture those moments, but there aren't nearly enough of them right now. And so I, I admit I probably share some blame in this. I, I would probably find it hard to sit across the table from, um, from some individual who is a, a, an ardent gun rights advocate and to have a sensible, reasonable conversation. I would do my best, but I'm not sure I could pull it off. Um, because to me, it just seems like such a uh, such a failure of public policy right now that we suffer the kind of gun violence that we suffer in the United States. Now, speaking of the relationship between um, public policy and public behavior, the White House has come under fire for its style of rhetoric and, and how it may be empowering domestic extremist actors within the US. The Pittsburgh attack on the synagogue and the mailing of pipe bombs being the obvious examples here. What level of responsibility do politicians bear for the actions of people who clearly already hold extreme political and social views? 
That's a very difficult question because I, I'm very hesitant to lay at any individual politician's feet responsibility for a particular horrific act of violence carried out by an individual they've never met, they've never engaged with, they've never given guidance or direction to. So I'm hesitant to, to do that. On the other hand, there's no question that, the, as I said a moment ago, the toxicity of the political environment we're in in the United States right now and the tendency to engage in speech that, act, that actually tends to demonize your political opponents and actually portray your political opponents as deeply threatening, as somehow threatening the very existence of the country or, or potentially um, supporting violence or supporting some foreign – some foreign force aimed at, at doing harm to the United States. If you paint your political adversaries in that light, it should be no surprise that some people who listen to those words choose to act on them. And so politicians need to bear some share of responsibility for toning down political rhetoric and reducing the likelihood that individuals, uh, misguided, uh, deranged individuals will hear those those dog whistles. That's the phrase we often use, a dog whistle. And act on them. And, and politicians can't and shouldn't escape responsibility entirely when those incidents happen. I think the, the way I've heard it phrased best is that um, some individuals have, have referred to – have said that the, the president certainly doesn't view himself as supporting white supremacists or, or other se severe right-wing ideologues. But that population very much does view the president as supporting their agenda, whether he thinks he's supporting their agenda that population has spoken out very clearly and indicated that they view th this president as advancing causes important to them. And if, if I were the president, I would want to make sure that I was as clearly and obviously disassociated from those individuals as I possibly could be. And so, again, not my position to judge, but if, the, if I, would be, I would feel much better if the president would much more aggressively disassociate himself from those right-wing extremist movements. There is a certain level of public and social responsibility when you take a position and an office like that. I couldn't agree more. The next question that we'll hear uh, touches on an area that I know is highly complex for a professional and a patriot such as yourself to discuss on public record, but let's hear that. I'm curious of how our guest speaker would see uh, President Trump's deriding of their national security advice, deriding of their processes and deriding of expert opinion in general, but especially in an area of national security and um, I, I would argue, say, international security. I'd like you to respond to this question with two particular issues in mind, and they being the Russian interference in the 2016 presidential elections and the White House's response to the Khashoggi murder in Turkey. Well, what, what those two instances have in common, of course, is that in both cases, it seems that the intelligence community in the United States has been very clear in an on-the-record kind of way uh, with the conclusions that in the case of the Russians, that the Russians did in fact engage in election interference in 2016. And, and again, with respect to the to the Khashoggi murder, it's a little more speculative because most of the, the um, reporting about what the CIA has concluded um, about Khashoggi's murder has been not confirmed by CIA, but has simply been reported by sources. So I want to be a little bit careful to say there's a distinction there. But in both cases, it would seem that the intelligence community has presented to the president a conclusion that 
he finds uncomfortable or inconvenient or at odds with his policy preferences. And that that obviously is a poses a difficult challenge for our national security apparatus because you want our in an ideal world our national security decisions are made informed fully by by top-notch intelligence analysis. The purpose of, of doing intelligence work is to give yourself a decision advantage over your adversaries. If you can understand what they are doing, uh, if you have an understanding of, of, of the landscape um, informed by, by really first-rate intelligence, then you should be able to make better decisions. And that whole construct is is thrown upside down if the decision maker simply looks at the intelligence analysis presented to him as being just another opinion or just another point of view. Some people have also asked me, what does this do to the, to the individuals in the intelligence community who prepare these analyses and who do this intelligence work? And I would argue that on, that on the one hand, it probably doesn't affect how they do their daily job. These are professional men and women, committed, passionate, talented whether, what the president says or does will not affect how they do their job today, tomorrow, or the next day. On the other hand, it has to be disheartening for this community of national security professionals, this community of intelligence professionals, to find that in key strategically important matters such as Russia and our relationship with Saudi Arabia, the president is is overtly rejecting the work of the intelligence community and is, is overtly putting into question uh, whether that information and analysis being presented by the intelligence community is worth anything. And so that is, that's, that's certainly unhealthy for our system. A follow-on question we have to this it comes from one of our listeners, Dave Hall, and it's a bit of a counterfactual. If the United States was to reduce its cooperation with the Saudi state because of the Khashoggi investigation, what kind of an impact would that have on America's ability to counter global terror challenges? And how should policymakers approach decisions where interests may conflict with values? Again, a very good question. And not and and it does pose certain policy dilemmas for the for this administration and or and indeed for any administration. On the one hand, we have done tremendous work with the Saudi intelligence and security services to keep Americans safe, to keep friends and partners safe, uh, and that work has been been carried out over many years, working as I said closely with intelligence and security services of the Saudi state on counterterrorism issues. My sense is is that that work can and should continue, but it can and should continue even in, at a moment when you are making very clear at a political level that certain other things are unacceptable. And again, the reason I think that work can and should continue is that it is is demonstrably in the in the Saudi state's interest to work with us on counterterrorism. It is in our interest to work with them on counterterrorism. So we are going to we are going to I think we can compartmentalize our work together on counterterrorism from other aspects of the relationship. And I don't think we have to choose in that case between value, between expressing our shock, horror, and outrage um, at the killing of an individual who, in the end, was an, a U.S. person, a, a legal permanent resident. Uh, I don't think we have to choose between expressing our opposition, our, 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 our sincere outrage at this, and working with the Saudi government on other issues where we can have a relationship. And whilst we're on politics, I'll ask this now. What do you see the outcome of the 2018 midterms elections having on policy approaches and candidate terrorism in particular? On counterterrorism, I don't see any course changes in the immediate period ahead. 
But I think where the president could face some challenges in the wake of the midterms are on some of his other policy priorities. And certainly uh, the issue we just discussed, how to respond to Saudi Arabia, the murder of, of Khashoggi, it now may not be simply a matter of what the president and the administration wish to do. It may also now be a matter of what the House of Representatives and the Senate allow the president to do. The, the Senate and the House of Representatives um, in carrying out their their statutory oversight responsibilities certainly have the ability to put constraints on what the president can do with Saudi Arabia. Similarly, I would expect that the, the president's um, views and policy on immigration could be affected by the results of the midterm elections. Uh, you, you could find that the, the House of Representatives in particular will legislate uh, in a way that puts, again, some constraints on what the president wishes to do with respect to immigration. So again, the president spent the first two years of his term of office with a Congress that was in Republican hands, both Senate and House of Representatives. That has fundamentally changed. He's, uh, the Republicans still maintain control of the Senate, but the House of Representatives is now uh, in Democratic hands. That means Democ Democratic members of the House have the ability to not only just criticize, but to uh, to hold administration officials to account for different policies and strategies and approaches that they disagree with. And if nothing else, that takes time, energy, and bandwidth from the administration um, to respond to that criticism and to respond to those, those queries from the House of Representatives. So the landscape has become more difficult for this president in carrying out his foreign policy duties. So let's move on to another question from the audience member from your recent address to the National Security College. This one involves technology. Uh, hi, my name's Andrea. Um, my question is uh, the effects of emerging technologies on uh, policy making, uh, particularly in the CT area, uh, around artificial intelligence and um, radicalisation of people and the effects of that. So what are some of the ways that you've seen technology impact counterterrorism and are there any new technologies on the horizon that give you cause for concern? So as with most things involving technology, it cuts both ways. We have certainly benefited from technological advancements over the last decade that have improved our capacity to identify who the bad guy is and where the bad guy is operating. And have, have a lot, those technological advances have, have proven extraordinarily useful in, in our counterterrorism work and allowed us to be much more effective at, again, at disrupting and mitigating potential terrorist threats to the United States, to Australia, to our other Western partners. At the same time, we have seen terrorist organizations and, and individual terrorists increasingly relying on new uh, new technologies to be able to carry out their work as well. And of course, I'm not telling you anything that you don't already know here uh, very well in Australia, uh, because the classic example of this, of course, is the way that terrorists have, be have become accustomed to using encrypted applications in order to facilitate communications between and amongst themselves. And I know that's a matter of, of, of public debate here in the Australia at, at this very moment. What can we do to counter the fact that terrorists are now able to communicate with each other in ways that are unseeable, um, unhearable for our law enforcement and intelligence authorities, putting us in the dark potentially when terrorist organizations are, are planning and, and plotting against us. So that is one way in which the technological advances that we've seen have actually made terrorism work more challenging and more difficult. I would think of this though as a, as a constant effort 
cat and mouse to try to take advantage of te- technological advances to turn the tide or turn the to tip the scales in our favor. Uh, the questioner mentioned artificial intelligence. Well, when I was departing government service, we were very keen on finding ways to use tools of artificial intelligence and machine learning to make our counterterrorism work more efficient. The, the large volume of data that we are looking at every single day to try to, to figure out where is their terrorism relevant data amongst all of the social media media data, for example, that exists in the world. You can't have a human analyst look at every piece of data that comes across their screen. It simply isn't possible given the volume. So if we, not just we in the United States, but Australia and our other partners are going to be effective in this counterterrorism domain going forward, we're going to have to become more efficient. And one way you become more efficient is by employing modern technology more to your advantage. And so I would hope if I were here having this conversation with you two years from now, that we would be much further along in the way we employ artificial intelligence, machine learning, and other advanced um, analytical tools. And so just to wrap up, I would like to ask something that has relevance for our postgraduate students here at the National Security College, and that is what advice could you offer to someone who's considering a career in national security or even counterterrorism in particular? Well, first of all, if you are even considering that career path, by definition, you have my my respect and admiration because, again, I don't think there's any higher calling than working in, in inside government um, alongside other you know committed, passionate, patriotic individuals. Skill development, and actually this this ties to the technology question that we just just discussed a second ago, Chris. Uh, one of the things I've I've noticed as as I wound up my government career is that the new generation of young officers joining my organization were digitally literate in a way that most of us who graduated from school 25 or 30 years ago couldn't possibly be. Their facility, their ability to operate using new technology, their ability to um, pivot from one technology to another far exceeded my own. And so I would, I guess I would encourage individuals looking to get into the national security arena to embrace technology as your friend. Because as I said, it can be used both to, by our adversaries to threaten us, but at the same time, it is also the technology is the, is the element most likely to give us a decisive advantage over our adversaries as well. So em- embrace that reality rather than fighting it uh, would be something I would recommend. And then I guess the last piece of advice, and it's probably more relevant in the American context than in the Australian, is if you are interested in doing national security work, Please try to ignore the politics because the uh, the politics of the day, I would hope, should not uh, affect uh, an individual's decision about whether they wish to enter into to public service. It's certainly something I've told young officers or young potential officers in the United States. I would hate to think that young officers would be dissuaded from pursuing a path, a career path in public service because they were turned off by the politics uh, and the political rhetoric uh, of the day. That to me would be tragic. It would mean that we're relying on less than our best and brightest to do national security work, and we certainly can't afford to do that. Excellent advice, Nick Rasmussen. Thanks for joining us on the National Security Podcast. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed it. And a huge thanks to Nick for joining us here in the studio for the National Security Podcast. There was a lot to digest in that podcast. And as always, we're very keen to hear your feedback. 
you can hit us up on Apps Policy Forum on Twitter or at Asia Pacific Policy Society on Facebook or send an email to podcast at policyforum.net. Also very keen to hear what you'd like us to talk about in the new year. Uh, any issues that are interesting to you or any questions that you'd like to see fielded or any particular speakers that if we can get them into the studio, we'll get them in for you. So make sure you let us know, drop us a rating while you're there and always hit that subscribe button as well. So a big thanks to everyone who's been listening to us in the first year of the National Security Podcast. And I'd like to say a big thank you to some of the people that have made this possible, especially my producer, Martin Pierce, also Edwina Landale and Gabrielle Knipe, who did a huge amount of work helping us with the Women in National Security special series. And we will be back with another year of the NatSec pod in January. Make sure you come and listen to us then. Quick heads up to Digby House. We still are bringing you that podcast on terrorism in Western China, and that's very likely to be our first pod off the rank next year. So be sure you listen into that. So thanks, everyone. Merry Christmas, season's greetings, happy Kwanzaa, Festivus, Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. I hope it's good for you. Thanks for listening, and we will see you again next year on the National Security Podcast. Surprise, surprise, we're still here and have I got a little Christmas present for you. Throughout the year I've had a lot of people coming to me, especially some of the students on campus coming and asking me about the podcasts that we do and how we do them. They're quite interested in recording our own. So I thought I would give you a little glimpse of what happens behind the scene at the National Security Podcast and the extreme levels of professionalism that we go to here to get you the NatSec pod. Hope you enjoy. Merry Christmas. Trying to sound deep and mysterious. Okay. Um. Um. Uh. Yeah, I think I'm pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. We won't do it. Um. 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 Uh. Um. Uh. I was in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. We're we're rolling with it. Um, and and that's what we've got to be. That is the pod. So, and and I'll say, uh, um, the uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, uh, fuck, I'm just repeating myself. Oh, now. Can I have a go? Um, um, the um, uh, um, 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 I'm going to start again. What does facetious mean? <laughs> Are you still here? Yeah, shit. Um, 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 Today, we talk... Okay. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.